and welcome to another episode of the Blue Nation podcast. Uh, you are joined by me, your host, Ben, and we have got many topics we're going to discuss today. So on the agenda, we will be discussing the 2030 World Cup bid but, uh, for the UK and Ireland, whether the Swiss style of democracy is the way to go in the wake of Gary Neville's recent comments, who will be the next Conservative leader, and why it's a bad time to hold the Scottish referendum. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to remind everyone that in the description below, there's a topic submission form that you can use to submit topics that you'd like to see us discuss in future episodes. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. So what many people have pointed to in the wake of the disaster that was the Euro final, not necessarily football, although we did lose, but more so uh, the security breaches, and which included many, many, many fans uh, getting into the stadium uh, without purchasing tickets, which of course were very expensive. And lots of people were annoyed by that because they've, you know, the tickets would have been upwards of a thousand pounds for the, you know, the worst seats in the house. And, but of course it was a special occasion, but also there was lots of racism seen online. And most of that, uh, much of it was from outside the UK. However, a lot of it was in, and it did put on this nasty image uh, for the country. So many insiders have now called the 2030 World Cup bid dead in the water. But I don't necessarily think that's the case. I'll give you an example. In Russia, there has been well, pre before their World Cup, there was mass spread hooliganism. Um, you might be able to remember in Euro 2016, uh, there were lots of controversies of Russia and some hooligans out of their fans. However, they went on to host the World Cup. Qatar, there's serious humanitarian issues there. And while it probably is due to corruption, you know, they managed to host the World Cup. And so, and I see no reason why um, the UK should be prevented from hosting it. And let's not forget, there's five nations that would be a part of this bid. There's the four nations of the UK, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and then there's the Republic of Ireland. And I think it would be a big, big cultural landmark to host this event. And, you know, uh, look at the London Olympics in 2012, what that is to the country, that act of patriotism and that enthusiasm for the whole of the UK, uh, it's hard to replicate. And one of the ways to replicate that is to host the World Cup, arguably bigger than the Olympics. Um, and also having it across the UK and also Republic of Ireland would very much add to this togetherness of the four nations in this country. You know, and it's something that we need. Uh, much. I'm going to discuss more independent stuff later in the show. However, much of it, despite all the economic issues and the currencies and, you know, whatever it may be, a lot of it comes down to national identity. What do you identify as? Do you identify as British or do you identify as English, Scottish, Welsh or Northern Irish? I personally identify as British, but I know probably most people uh, identify as just one of their smaller nations. Uh, and, you know, who's in, who's in the World Cup? I know it'd still be a ways away. 
2030, you know, it's nine years time. It's a long time to go and a lot can happen during that time. You know, possibly uh, Scotland could have left the UK. Hopefully not. I personally doubt it. That could happen. Uh, and we must not neglect that possibility. Um, but to have this sort of event that ties together the strands of the UK that is hosted around the country that can be promoted as a UK event, you know, it's something that uh, doesn't come around often. But there is lots of competition for this World Cup. There's been particular competition from South America. Uh, there's talks about Saudi Arabia want a bid, and they're discussing going uh, half bidding. And one of those countries they're thinking of is Italy, who, of course, won the Euros. However, in Italy, um, there has been much racism between certain sects of fans. Uh, not between, but f uh, from certain sects of fans, I should say. And the Serie A, which is the Italian Football League, their attempts uh, to try and be anti, uh, like have their anti-racism program. Uh, well, that was a disaster with them using monkeys uh, in their promotion, which of course was a terrible idea. And you know, I don't think there's. I think there's much more countries that are, um, are worse to host the World Cup in the UK and Ireland. And, you know, let's say South America, that's a popular bid at the moment. However, can they afford to host the World Cup? You know, again, it's a similar issue to what we discussed last week with the Olympics. You know, building the grounds and building facilities that simply aren't going to be used, that they're going to struggle to pay back, that is a big problem. And I know some Baltic countries have... Uh, formally bid for the World Cup. There's Morocco who have. And again, they run the same issues. There's only really out of the formally interested parties, the UK and Ireland are the only real countries that are the most sustainable uh, offers on the table. And so no, I do not think it is dead in the water. I think it's very important that we try hard to get this World Cup and that we try to achieve it. And if we do, It'll be a great success. And, you know, there hasn't been a World Cup in this country since 1966. That's over 50 years. And by 2030, that'll have been 64 years. And it could potentially be more. And for the nation, for the country, that where football originated uh, formally and where the country, where the first international matches played, that's simply a disgrace. You know, we need more... It's important to diversify around the world, but it has not been in the UK for a long, long time, and it needs to come home. Now, we are going to be discussing the next topic today, and that is some recent comments by Gary Neville with him calling for a, quote, peaceful revolution in this country. Now, if you have a look at the polling figures at the moment, I think they did a little bit, but they're currently standing around 40% for the Conservatives. And when, you know, the majority party has 40% in the polls in this country, that is a sign that they're doing quite well, that people are supporting them. So for him to call it a revolution, uh, calling for a revolution, claim that the UK is simply broken, and many people will argue that, but it's not broken to its core, 
our whole system is not, well, it has some flaws. It's not completely flawed like some other countries. It's clearly working because, <laughs> you know, we live in this democratic country and it has worked for us for years. Uh, we've, you know, it's worked for us for hundreds of years and it's been very successful. And it's like, you know, he calls for this, but he doesn't elaborate on it. Uh, you know, that's a big issue. But what could be a potential peaceful revolution? It's just, it got me thinking of this specific idea that comes from Switzerland. And we're going to be discussing it, whether it would be beneficial for the UK uh, to have this democratic system. So in Switzerland, while, you know, this very neutral country, uh, I think a couple of years ago, there was a story I read that uh, someone who was Swiss and he went to go and fight ISIS actually got imprisoned uh, because of the neutrality laws in Switzerland. So Switzerland is a very uh, anomalous country. It's a bit of a, it does things a bit differently. One of the ways they do that is with their political system. And the way they do that, they almost over-democratize themselves. It's uh, hosting referendums on practically everything and anything. And many people have pointed out that this is a great thing, you know, uh, and they'll have different referendums. You know, they might have a referendum in their smaller town in what's called Canton, which is a state uh, for reference. There's 26 cantons in Switzerland, uh, part of a federal system, and then nationwide votes. And the turnouts do vary a lot for these. For example, in 2015, there was an immigration uh, bill uh, that was proposed that it was the government very, very heavily opposed. However, the people did vote for it and it did cause some uh, a split. It did cause some issues with the EU, but that's what the people voted for. And they knew the repercussions of that. They clearly wanted a stronger immigration system and the turnout for that was quite high. But maybe install weapons to install solar powered energy in your town. You know, it's not going to get a high turnout. <laughs> and so it could potentially, this is the main problem with uh, this system. Not everyone can be educated and vote for the right things. And often, uh, let's say the EU referendum, that's completely different. Many people point out, oh, people aren't educated enough, so they vote to leave. That's complete. That's not the case. You know, it's this massive once-in-a-lifetime referendum that there was about 75% turnout because so many people found it uh, vitally important for the future of this country. And people, you know, researched and looked up and made their minds up what they wanted to vote for. And they decided to vote to leave the EU. And that's what we have done. And that, what, that's what should have happened. And that's what has happened. However, if you had so many referendums, it would be hard to keep track. And often it would only be people that have a very, very strong opinion uh, about the issue that would vote in these smaller referendums. And that leaves out a large part of the electorate. And it can often lead to turnouts that aren't necessarily favored. And so that's the first part of the Swiss system. But the second part is that strange coalition government. So in their cabinet, they have seven members made up of what used to be four parties, but now it's five, the rise of a recent party that's now currently the largest in parliament. And then they had this formula where one party, three parties in fact, 
would get two seats in this cabinet and then one party would get one seat. But now it's it's changed a little bit, so it's split between five parties. But still, it's a very interesting system. And often, until a few years ago, it was the same parties all the time. It was these same four parties. And that cannot be changed. You know, there wasn't, it's not the top four parties in the election. It's just the same, you know, it's the same every time. And, you know, having some more seats may help a little bit in terms of getting laws passed. And, and you know, this coalition government has probably benefited in having this very, very close cooperation between different parties. It leads to less political differences between the people because, you know, the government's more aligned with its opposition. Uh, well, the government and opposition are really the same thing. And But the problem with this is to have these big decisions, like a very conservative decision or a very socialist decision, or whatever it may be, it's very hard to enact without this referendum um, because, you know, it's in a coalition government, many of these big policies are undermined or they're completely scrapped because the other party simply cannot agree to it. So... Hypothetically, in this country, if you were to imagine a cabinet consisting of Labour, the Lib Dems, Conservatives, and then maybe Reform UK, or the Greens could even get a seat. So it'd be very interesting. You know, we haven't seen government national unity since the war, uh, but we only have them in absolute crises. And, like, you know, only in events of war, normally, not even things like the coronavirus pandemic, we get some of that. It was briefly um, suggested by a few members of parliament uh, during the Brexit talks, but, you know, that would that never materialised anything, nor I think it would have ever done that. Uh, and if you can remember back to Brexit, when Theresa May was still prime minister and Jeremy Corbyn was still the Labour leader and the leader of the opposition, uh, they started having meetings with each other, discussing some Brexit talks that really fizzled out into nothing and only led some propositions that ultimately weren't voted for. So many ask, is this a system the way to go? I don't necessarily think it is. I think it's still good to have one party uh, in charge, or it could be a coalition, depending if it's a hung parliament. I think that's perfectly okay. You know, that's how democracy works in this country. Uh, but I do think we should have some more referendums. I do believe that possibly every two years we can have a set list of referendums uh, of different questions. So to minimise, you know, the costs and they could uh, and they shouldn't really be massive issues. They shouldn't try and force stuff on. Uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be as big as the EU, but it could be something like, oh, do you want to, uh, cut national insurance this price, you know, do you believe it's important to, should we set up this service, you know, something like that. Uh, big, big decisions, or would you like to vote for this immigration bill? That's a great example of things that we could do. Uh, so, yeah, I believe every two years we should have some referendums. I think it has worked while, it, uh, you know, that, massive democratic decision we had in 2016 on the 23rd of June. Um, 
you know, that was a monumental occasion. But it showed that, and it showed that, you know, people can make this democratic decision for themselves. And I think that's really important, especially in today's times. Now, on to our next topic, we are going to discuss in who will be the next conservative leader. Now, many people recently, most notably Dominic Cummings, have suggested that Boris Johnson is not right for the job. And, you know, Dominic Cummings, the same man who was his, you know, chief advisor for a couple of years, which is frankly quite ridiculous that he's suggesting this sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, I, I do think lots of it is for attention. But the main thing is he suggested that days after the 2019 general election, they were discussing ousting him and believing that Carrie Simmons, not Carrie Johnson, has had too much control. But, you know, there's, there's lots of debate, and as an outlooker looking in, uh, we don't exactly know what's going on there, what the like, power struggle is. Uh, the, all we can rely on is some leaks from insiders. However, uh, many have said that, you know, Boris Johnson won't last or in the next election, he'll blow his majority and he'll be forced to resign. I, I can't see that happening. I personally believe he will be in power until 2029. That's my personal uh, prediction. I think he'll do another election, do another term, and that'll be it with him. And, you know, a recent time support said that he's eyeing up a decade in power, possibly even longer than Margaret Thatcher. So if he was to take over, he took over in 2019, so he could easily get to 10 years, in my opinion. You know, it's highly unlikely that a party who has an 80-seat majority can, you know, lose it and not be the major party anymore. And, you know, there's a good chance that it could go down. But, and, you know, that probably will be the case, regardless of what happens in the next few years. Just the way that, you know, uh, general trends go in this country over the past 100 years. Uh, but no, I can't see him stepping down. But, you know, if we were to discuss who could be next conservative leader, I think there's two options. Uh, I'd like, you know, to succeed Boris Johnson, uh, possibly after that time. And, you know, someone else could crop up, uh, and many of the currently favoured options will fall wayside over the next 10 years, and many unheard of ones will crop up and be more prominent uh, because, you know, of course that happens, uh, but two main options. So number one is Rishi Sunak. So at the moment, Rishi Sunak is really popular, really surprisingly, actually. You know, uh, a, a, a chancellor, regardless of what party they are, and normally, and any politician for that matter, they're not really well-liked if they have a high post like that. Um, and, you know, many people, I, I believe he's done a good job. I'm not uh, criticising the job he's done or suggesting that it hasn't been adequate enough. I'm just saying it's a surprise to, you know, have someone that's uh, so popular. It'd be like I've seen, I've walked past in the street before and I've seen posters of the uh, Rishi Sunak and it says the Chancellor needs you to eat out to help out, or whatever it was, I can't remember. But I just saw it and it really made me think, wow, he's really well liked. And the, the area I'm walking past, it's a very much like a very prominent Labour stronghold. 
and it has been for decades decades and when i say decades i do mean decades um but it made me think of uh in the war with oh what did you call him again uh lord kitchener the war minister during world war one when he's pointing i'm sure you've seen it before when he's like uh we your king wants you or something he's pointing at um he's like facing you as you look at the poster and it made me think of that it made me think wow you know this is incredible that apology i've never seen this for a politician in the uk and you know i'm not suggesting he's some sort of messiah or he's got like through the roof um like approval ratings you know tony blair had about 90 percent approval rating when he became prime minister of course that's uh, declined rapidly over the years but it was still high but of course as you can probably tell i wasn't around when he or at least i wasn't born at the start of his premiership <laughs> uh but he's the obvious option he'd be the successor to boris johnson kind of like the gordon brown to tony player as we're discussing him uh of course gordon brown's the chancellor for years uh but We'll see what happens with Rishi Sunak because, well, you know, he's uh, handing out lots of money now. He's sort of saving people's jobs and keeping them afloat and keeping a roof over the, uh, roof over them and keeping food on the table. You know, when the taxes <laughs> start to creep in in 2023, as per the government plan, you know, it's going to be a bit of a different story, possibly. <laughs> he may not be as well-liked, but, you know, there's a reality that we do have to face because of the pandemic and because of uh, what the government decided. Not necessarily saying what they've decided is a bad thing. You know, if they said, okay, we're not having any sort of fellow scheme, uh, you know, uh, if you lose a job, you lose a job. Uh, if you don't get paid, you don't get paid. Of course, that would have been a terrible decision, and it's a decision that we can afford to make. Many countries cannot afford to make this decision, but of course we could, which is really good. Uh, but I think he's the first option. And the second option would be more moderate candidate. And many people have touted, tooted um, Ruth Davidson, of course, the former leader of Scottish Conservatives, as a potential option. And Ruth Davidson, with the current state of the Conservative Party, she really doesn't align with that view. And the only I could possibly see a more moderate candidate like her uh, coming to power if, you know, they lost, the Conservatives lost an election or people really became uh, disillusioned with this sort of um, more like one nation conservative uh, mentality we have at the moment, like the sort of centre right to. Sort of mild right wing. If we're looking for more of a centre to centre right government, then of course I think she could potentially uh, be at the head of that. Uh, and there were rumours that she resigned from her post when Boris Johnson became the leader, because uh, of course she worked very um, well with Theresa May because they aligned on many issues, and you know she was a firm, um, a staunch opponent to Brexit, but you know, she's no longer that because of the democratic election, uh, democrat decision we took. And the Conservatives pre-2016 were very divided. It was very much 50-50, like who wants to leave, who wants to stay. And you know, that's, I think by the time she becomes Luke, uh, if she became leader, that sort of 
uh, while Brexit would still be, you know, uh, a big issue, like, you know, the e status outside of the EU would be a big issue. She, it wouldn't be an issue that could dictate a premiership or that friend to rip apart the Conservative Party, as, you know, at the moment, it no longer does that as well. Uh, we've moved on quite quickly, which is really good. Uh, but she was really popular as Scot Scottish Conservative leader uh, when she was at the helm. Uh, of course, uh, she resigned when she was uh, to like, look after her children a bit more. So, of course, her decision of, like, you know, have, we discussed the movements uh, a couple of seconds ago. Um, but, yeah, she, she was very popular and she still is quite popular. So, you know, the two options we've had a look at are both quite popular compared to someone like uh, Boris Johnson. For all, he's very popular among many people. Uh, he's one of those characters that you either really like him or you don't. And there's not many people that are in the middle or a slightly to either side. <laughs> now, before we move on to the next topic, I, and the final one for today, I just want to say thank you for all your support recently. Uh, it's been really immense and really great for the show. Uh, so thank you for that. And I want to remind everyone that there's the topic submission form that we discussed earlier in the video, that's in the description. And please like, subscribe, and share our videos or to follow us on Spotify and listen to our other episodes. We discuss everything from uh, in recent episodes from a potential Trump run in 2024, vaccine passports, whether Freedom Day should have been delayed. This was in the past, as you can tell. And a whole array of issues. We discuss four topics every single week on exclusively on uh, YouTube for shorter segments and we also release full episodes on Spotify and Pocket Cast and Record Breaker and a whole array of podcast platforms. So that's the easiest way to find us. And also you can follow us on Twitter. Now we're, I think it's time to discuss the final topic for today. And we're gonna discuss the Scottish referendum. Now this is an issue that I'm very passionate about and it's one that I'm passionately against, for that matter, in case you can tell already. I am a staunch unionist. I fully believe in the values and the benefits of holding and keeping this country together. Um, but there are threats that, you know, that um, this dream scenario, I believe we're living at the moment, could be ripped apart. And the most prominent, uh, most prominent threat to that is Scottish independence. Of course, for years, the leader of uh, well, the Scottish government have been the SNP, who is Scottish nationalist, and uh, firm believers in Scottish independence. They are the party of independence. Uh, Exxon, the Alba party, which, you know, failed quite miserably in the uh, election, the recent election earlier this year, but Nicola Sturgeon, you know, oh, <laughs> it pains me to say that name sometimes, not because I disrespect her, I don't respect her, it's because, you know, she, I, I don't align with her views. <laughs> uh, but recent, uh, Boris Johnson is going to be going up to Scotland and she's invited from talks. And it's been dubbed as talking about coronavirus. I'm sure they'll talk about coronavirus alignment. 
between England and Scotland. However, surely to come up on the table, the Scottish independence. And every single year it comes to the table, we're like, okay, we're going to aim to host the referendum next year's next year or we're going to aim to host the referendum next year the year after that or we're going to host in the next two years you know it just keeps on cropping up and cropping up within this party and it is clear in scotland that the people simply do not care about a scottish referendum they'd much rather see uh most of them would much rather see it just you know remain in the uk for the time being maybe you know that's a different issue but it's not the main issue at the moment we're in the middle of a pandemic and scottish independence is you know it's only going to cause more division um in this nation and of course it will and we don't need that at the moment we need unity and i think having a different pandemic approach and a pandemic um decision making from each separate nation i don't know if that's the best idea um i guess from and i'm not speaking from a health standpoint you know having more uh localized decision making probably is better uh because you know the covid rates are different in different parts of the nation uh, however, it has created this border, this like you know, this fractious border between these four nations. So of course, it's not a good idea. And of course, with the um, oh, of course, called <laughs> the EU, uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol. That's what it's called. Sorry, this is terrible. I'm saying this. I'm, I'm mixing up my words midway through the show. <laughs> Sorry about that. If you're still listening, and congratulations if you are still listening. Um, but yeah, this uh, it's not good for a from a national standpoint, from a you know a union standpoint. And it is a really bad time to host the Scottish referendum, and that is because of two main reasons. Firstly, the pandemic, because as we've just discussed, it creates this. Uh, sort of invisible border between the four nations, which is not a good idea. And secondly, because of Brexit, and uh, you know, I firmly believe that Brexit will be a success. I believe it is the right decision. It is the democratic decision. However, in Scotland, it is firmly opposed. The vast majority of supporters, well, not every supporter, uh, the majority do not support it. Um, and many have said, oh, the Scotland, Scotland would be better in the, in the EU rather than the UK. However, we need to wait to see Brexit effects. No one ever said Brexit or expect that Brexit would have short-term boosts for the nation. Of course, uh, we'll, we've already seen some smaller ones um, coming out of many, like, you know, many big businesses as like being a bit freer of EU regulation and the EU courts, uh, which has brought some business to the UK, uh, but see the long-term effects, we're going to have to wait at least 10 years. And that's what we should wait for Scottish referendum. Rather than saying Brexit will be a terrible, uh, mistake for the UK, you have to wait. And let's not forget it was a UK wide referendum and Gibraltar as well. It's not a referendum just in England and Wales. It never was and it never will be because we are the awesome foursome 
<laughs> of nations and we will always vote together. And, you know, it's ridiculous. It's like saying, you know, oh, my constituency voted the Green Party in the election, but the government is a Labour a government. Well, that's how democracy works. You know, everyone has the right to vote. So we're going to see, uh, we're going to have to wait a while for the effects, and we're going to have to wait for the economy to rebound from the pandemic. What are you doing? Good at that. Uh, we just need to wait a little bit longer. And I don't think the Scottish referendum should ever be hosted. Uh, well, I wouldn't like it for it to be hosted. But, you know, they should wait at least, you know, a good amount of time before deciding whether it is something that is necessary or necessarily needed in Scotland or any other nation of the UK for that matter, whether that be Wales or a Irish unification um, proposition referendum. Now, that is all for today. That is the end of the show. And I want to thank you uh, for listening to it. And hopefully you're still here. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's great. And, you know, uh, next week it'll be even better. So until next time, goodbye. <laughs>